You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. and hospitality cybersecurity professionals. I'm Luke Vanderlinden, Vice President of Membership at the Retail and Hospitality Information Sharing and Analysis Center, and you're listening to the RHISAC Podcast. If you're a regular listener, I think by now you know that these podcasts aren't recorded live in some swanky studio at the RHISAC's Command Center and Security Compound. Nope, today I'm recording from the Hilton Granite Park in Plano, Texas, where the 2023 RHISAC Cyber Intelligence Summit just wrapped up last night. Almost 400 attendees, three great days of sessions, keynotes, a capture the flag, a tabletop exercise, and more importantly, I got to see so many of our members that maybe I've only met once or twice in person, or I've never met. It was absolutely terrific, and I am exhausted. But I also got the opportunity to grab some of our members and even a few of our presenters into the makeshift studio we set up off the exhibit hall to record some segments that we'll be rolling out over the course of the next few months on the RHISAC podcast, something to look forward to in your podcast listening life. On this episode, I have a couple conversations we recorded just yesterday, one with Brett Cumming of Skechers. Brett is on the RHISAC board and very excitingly was selected by his peers as the 2023 CISO of the year. Brett's dedication and expertise were cited as having not just protected Skechers, but having fostered a culture of trust and reliability that extends far beyond Skechers' security efforts to building a future where security is core to the delivery of their product and technology. A great honor and very well-deserved by Brett. We also gathered Tyler Compton and Jonathan Buckner, both of Aaron's, who gave a great presentation on a project they've been developing for over a year on security control validation. This definitely veered into the highly technical, so we enlisted the help of our own Ian Furr, who you may remember was a guest on the podcast not too long ago, and we dug a little deeper into their project. Finally, I'm sitting down with Alex Hyde, the VP of Threat Research and a fellow at Security Scorecard. Security Scorecard Card is a great associate member of ours. We're going to talk about the evolution of credit card fraud and how retail and hospitality businesses can stay ahead of the threat actors. So no rest for the weary when it comes to the RHI SAC podcast. Let's get to a great episode. All right, I am now excited to be joined by Brett Cumming, who's the Senior Director of Information Security at Skechers and more importantly, a board member of the RHISEC, and as of last night, the CISO of the year for 2023. Congratulations, Brett, and welcome to the RHISEC podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Luke. Very good to be here. So uh, tell us a little bit. You were surprised by being CISO of the year when I announced that, when it was announced last year? I, last I was very surprised. Yes, very honored, very surprised. It was, it was cool to win that award. This group has meant a lot to our organization from a cybersecurity perspective over the years, really helped us out in a lot of different ways. And we always tried to, to contribute a lot back. So it was surprising, uh, but very, very uh, honored to have received it. That's great. And, and we're, we're so lucky to have you on our board. So um, I guess we should back up a little bit. Why don't uh, you, for the listeners who don't know you as well, uh, maybe tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got to the role where you are now. Sure. So I have been with my current company, Skechers, for almost 12 years now. 
and did a number of different roles in technology uh, throughout that time. And about six years ago, was asked to build out our information security program. Wow. So that's what I've been up to for the last six years, starting uh, having the opportunity to start from scratch and, and build it out has been a fun ride. It's been a great learning opportunity. It's yeah. been great to do it at a company that's been growing. It's been great to do it with all the challenges and how dynamic everything is and have the opportunity to get to get involved in a lot of different things. So, And uh, RHISAC was a group that we got involved with early. I don't ask me how I originally found out about the group. I don't. I was going to ask. <laughs> the memory doesn't go back that far that much detail, but um, really glad that that was a choice that we made because it's been a lot of help as the uh, as the program has grown at, at various different stages throughout. Yeah, I was good. You know, we have members. We're up to 250 members now of all different sizes and levels of maturity. So I, I, it always fascinated me when you get the chance and the opportunity to build something from scratch. A, you can make it as you want it, but also it's a huge project to just figure mm-hmm. out what to do next. How did the RHISAC play a role in that, or where, what resources did you use to figure all that out? Yeah, so it was really, it was really invaluable, especially early on, getting that peer perspective, getting to meet with peer organizations in the same industry, but uh, organizations that were at different phases of their own programs, some very large organizations that had been building programs for many years, and, and some that were even earlier in the process than we were. So being able to connect with those organizations and those peers at those different stages and hear, hey, what are you doing right now? Where were you when you started? What types of things you tackle first? You know, getting, getting together with other organizations that had teams that were about the same size of ours, and, and that was throughout as, as the team had grown. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of perspective, invaluable insight, and again, to do it with peers that are at the similar companies, the same type of companies, facing the same types of threats, um, really unique and, and really invaluable, again, throughout that process. That's great. So for those listeners who couldn't tell yet, we are recording this uh, at our summit, which wrapped up uh, in early October. Um, and there were some great sessions and a lot of presentations on emerging threats and how info security teams can, can stay ahead of those. Um, what are some of the biggest challenges and opportunities you see now in cybersecurity? This is, this is a really interesting question. I am going to say something about AI. If, okay, if you ask good. me about emerging threats, and I given, given, given the year... We have to say something about AI. Um, I think the stuff that's really top of mind for us right now is a lot of the identity-based threats, both from the perspective of how the landscape is changing with the way that companies are using the technology, with that continuing trend that we've seen for a lot of years around leveraging more diverse and distributed technology, that that traditional perimeter going away. That's been the case for a number of years. I think the part that's really significant over the last year, year and a half is how we've seen the threat actors evolving their techniques and getting really good at attacking those identities, at bypassing some of those things that were really foundational controls for us, the push-based and SMS-based multi-factor. We've seen really dramatic acceleration in threat actors' ability to attack those things. So identity is a big focus area for us. It's a big focus area for us going forward. And then I was joking about AI, but I think that's really fascinating as well. We had a lot of really interesting conversations around how threat actors are going to use that, how that's going to change their tactics, and how it's going to enable them to accelerate some of the things they're doing, lower the barrier to entry with some of the techniques they might want to employ. And I think it's also really interesting, the, the important part and the thing that I'm trying to keep mindful of when we talk about those types of technologies is we can expect the good guys to be able to leverage those as well. So I'm also really interested in how, as defenders, we can leverage some of that AI stuff and some of the generative technology. And we've already seen it popping up in, in some of the technologies and capabilities that, that we're using today. So 
keep an eye on both of those as we go forward, and it's going to be interesting no matter what happens. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up both the good and the bad because some people focus on one over the other, but there is, there is good and bad to it, and you really can't stop people from using it. You know, any company that tries to prohibit their employees from even thinking about it, it's not going to be successful. Yep, not so going to work. Might as well put some guardrails up around it. Um, one of the other topics that seem to um, be touched on a lot at this summit is fraud, uh, organized retail crime, areas where cyber and physical security may be merging together and, and fusing together. How does your team work with other departments within your company to kind of have a more holistic approach to security? That's definitely a big focus area for us, specifically the the collaboration, working with other teams. It's something that we've been able to really start to leverage some of the capabilities that we built originally to focus on more of the traditional cyber threats, bringing in data from different sources, being able to gather and develop insights you know, across those and correlate activities between different types of data and platforms. So it's certainly the collaboration is essential when you talk about those types of threats, when you're talking about things that cross over between a fraud team or a cyber team, a physical team, depending on what it is you're talking about. So that is really an, an area, like I said, that, that we're leaning on collaboration, but also trying to bring some of our own expertise that, that we've built on the cyber side over the years. Right. And then looking beyond the folks who are in necessarily in security, whether we're talking cyber or physical or, or anything, what advice do you have for creating a culture of security throughout an organization? Uh, so collaboration, I mentioned that word. That's a really important one. And going back to an earlier comment I was making about having had the opportunity to build out a security program from scratch, one of the things that was really important at the very beginning was the identity of the program, the relationship that we were going to have with the business, with the rest of the different departments in the organization. So we had that golden opportunity to really build the relationship how we wanted to. So starting from a culture of being proactive, bringing awareness, really asking that question all the time, how can we help, trying to bring value in whatever way we can. Again, going back to some of our own competencies and capabilities and, and taking a second look at those and trying to figure out who else could benefit from some of these things that, that we've developed and some of these things that we think we do well. So leading from that approach, again, partnership and, and communication and collaboration. So I'll ask you another culture question now. We talked about the culture of security. The S in RHISAC stands for sharing. We think it's very important. Our members think it's very important to share uh, and collaborate amongst uh, other members of the RHISAC. How do you create a culture of sharing amongst your security team? Leading by example, I would say, is, is the first and most important way. Um, having had the opportunity to get involved with what was actually our CISC at the time we first got involved, and having a small team, building that internal culture of, of collaboration and sharing by showing folks that it's okay, that it's, it's important, it's valuable, helping to, to set up those guardrails so that folks know what type of stuff is valuable to share, what type of stuff is okay to share, um, getting involved and, and leading in that way and really trying to, to push the team to get involved and help them see the value and see the benefit. And I think that's a place where RHISAC has been unique because of the different working groups the different folks that get involved at the different layers of our organization that really are peers, no matter what level you're at or which part of a information security or cybersecurity program you're working in, you can find a peer that's got your job or a very similar job working at a very similar company. So that peer-to-peer -peer connection transcends throughout our entire organization. So really trying to help the folks, again, leading by example, but also help them to connect with those other peers, get them involved in the working groups. And it doesn't take long for them to, to figure out the value and, and appreciate it and be able to kind of share back. That's terrific. Uh, and I wish, um, I hope all of our uh, members and, and, and uh, non-members are listening to that because it's so vital to, uh, to protecting our, our, 
our property. So uh, you mentioned that when you uh, joined the RHI SEC, it was called RSISC. We have a, a bit of a history. That was a while ago. You've been on the board for about a year now. So you uh, have some insights into to the organization now and how it's run. Next year, 2024, is our 10-year 10, 10 anniversary. Been around for 10 years. What are you most excited about for the RHI SEC as an organization as we look forward as an organization? Well, I've been really impressed. It's been incredible to see how the organization has grown and changed over the years that we've been involved. The ways in which RHISAC as an organization has matured their own operations, their own capabilities, the quality of some of the services, the intelligence reports, the value add that RHISAC brings, along with the maturity of all the different organizations, the member organizations that are sharing and contributing, seeing that journey of both growth, where there's more member organizations, there's more sharing, and there's really good frameworks for high-quality sharing. So we're seeing a value in a lot of different ways. So I'm excited to see that trend continue. I'm excited to see continued growth, and I'm excited to see that continued maturity. So speaking of growth, last night you didn't just get the CISO of the Year Award. You also got a new award from the RHISAC, one that I'm more proud of because I got to uh, give it to you. And it honors uh, members who have done exceptional work in helping us grow the RHISAC membership and develop the community by uh, helping us reach out to non-members and, and cultivate those. So you and I have worked a little bit on our membership initiatives. You're on the membership committee with me. So I'd love to hear your, th- your thoughts on um, why and how to we prioritize this effort of growth and why you think it's important. It's important because of the value that we get from the organization. And it's real easy for me to talk about RHISAC to other folks because it really comes from a place of complete honesty. This is not a vendor-led organization. This is an organization that's really driven by the members. These are peers that are fighting the same battles that we are day in and day out. They have the same kind of challenges, the same kind of struggles. And so when I'm out in the world meeting different folks and we're talking about the challenges and struggles, it's not hard to bring up RHISAC as a great resource for other peers. And, And again, like I mentioned before, being able to operate at different levels in different stages, it doesn't matter if you're a huge organization and you have a really advanced program or you're just starting out and have no idea what you're doing, there's probably going to be something that's valuable for you. Excellent. That's so great. Brett, congratulations again for being CISO of the year. Thank you for serving on our board, and thank you for joining us on the RHISAC podcast. Thank you, Lou. Great to be here. By the way, CISO of the year was one of 35 awards that were given out at the member meeting and celebration last Tuesday night. These awards recognize outstanding companies and individuals who have displayed extraordinary dedication to the RHISAC's mission to build a collaborative sharing community that enables consumer-facing organizations to defend against cyber threats. CISO of the Year was one of the Peer Choice Awards, voted on by RHISAC members. Target was also acknowledged by their peers with awards for both Overall Team of the Year, while their Director of Cyber Threat Intelligence, Matt Brady, was named Practitioner of the Year. And for the second year in a row, Palo Alto was voted Associate Member of the Year. Then there were a boatload of awards given to member companies and individuals for sharing and collaboration. In fact, we have a challenge where members compete against each other. The big award winners were the teams from Contour Brands, IHG Hotels and Resorts, Marriott International, and Target. Teams and individuals from Sheehan, Kroger, and Dick Sporting Goods were also singled out. Congratulations to all the award winners and kudos to them and all of our members for making the RHI SAC such an active and robust sharing community.
All right, and now we're joined on the podcast by Jonathan Buckner and Tyler Compton, both of Aaron's, and you're both in uh, security engineering team. Welcome to the RHI SAC podcast. And we're also joined by our own Ian Furr. You might recall Ian was on the podcast talking about his more volunteer activities a couple uh, episodes ago. Welcome back to the podcast, also from our security engineering team. Thanks, Luke. Happy to be here. So, uh, Jonathan and Tyler, you uh, did a session for us at our recent uh, Cyber Intelligence Summit on um, on uh, security control validation. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourselves, what you do at Aaron's, and a little bit about the subject that you had for our, the session. Yeah, so uh, I guess I, I just real briefly, I just, uh, I'm still relatively new to the cybersecurity field. Um, I went to Sam Houston, graduated, got my degree in cybersecurity, uh, graduated about a year ago, came on as an intern and managed my way to a full-time position. And now here I am. Uh, last year, I attended the summit as an intern and then somehow turned around and now I'm here presenting this topic. Um, so security control validation is a really interesting topic and it's something that um, I wasn't honestly super familiar with until until we got here. Um, but security control validation, if, you, if you're not aware of, it's just making so everyone has established security controls, but you don't know that's that it's working until you actually start getting attacked. And none of us actually want to be an attack or want to be attacked. So you might as well attack ourselves so you know it's happening. And then you can, you know, validate your controls are working as properly and, and go from there. Right. And I'm Tyler Compton. I lead the uh, what, what we call the ATS team. We really just do threat services and internal red teaming at Aaron's. So I'm the lead engineer uh, on the team with Jonathan. This was mostly his project, um, but the, a lot of guys on the team had a hand in building it out, uh, even from other departments in uh, the Aaron security team. So just shout out to all those guys while we're here as well. Uh, for the higher level, security control validation is really a way to show value in your security control program as well. So what we're mostly concerned with when we built this out is how do we build some metrics that we're going to report up to the people that are eventually going to be buying back into our security program. And this this has had great success in getting organizational buy-in for offensive security operations uh, at our organization. So Awesome. So that's a great intro, guys. Thank you so much. The title of your talk was Security Validation on a Budget. So can you go a little bit into the talk itself and what brought you to this point? Right. So I'll, I'll take that one. We were originally paying an exorbitant amount of money for security control validation, as many organizations are. And I've, I've talked to several people, um, other engineers, who are utilizing some of the same tooling that we're using for this project and they said, well, it's just, it's a time sink, and we already pay a vendor to do it, so we haven't really put the time into it. When Jonathan here was an intern, he took this on as a project, and I don't know that many of us thought anything big was going to come from it at the time um, until we, we looked at what Jonathan had done, and all of a sudden we were like, whoa, there's incredible value in this, right? So we ended up completely cutting out our security control validation vendor. I won't name any names, but we uh, saved our organization into the six figures. And um, I've been telling a few people uh, as I'm talking to other engineers that if they just take the time and it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a time sink. It is. But if you take the time, the, monetary value you get out of it, the customization you get out of it, and the organizational 
buy-in and, and and value that you're going to add back into that top level of visibility into what you're doing is immeasurable. You can't quantify that with uh, revenue. But our our budget is zero dollars. So this is a completely free thing that just takes human labor. That's fantastic. So you mentioned that zero dollar budget. Do you want to get into some of the tools that you're specifically using in this project? Yeah, so we actually use a combination of technically three different tools. Two of them are uh, free or open source tools, and one of them is actually, uh, so shout out again to our Aaron's team. We have an absolutely amazing automation engineer who's doing a lot of the behind the scenes grunt work to kind of pull it all together, but more on that later. Um, so basically our main two tools is so you have to have some way of actually attacking or testing your controls, some way of documenting and reporting those tools, and then to make it hands-off, you have the automation to kind of tie it all together. So that first tool we have is uh, from Red Canary. It's Atomic Red Team. It's an open-source project hosted fully on GitHub, and you basically just download um, this, and, and everything's uh, routed back to the MITRE attack framework as well. So everything's, uh, all the TTPs and all that follow perfectly with the MITRE attack framework. Actually, all of our tools do. And it's just, it hosts all of those attacks that we can then run and choose to run against any of our uh, network machines, whether it's a Windows, Mac, or basic Linux, or any of those. So it's a lot of customization ability and scalability with it. Um, all run locally that you can then run either to uh, attacks either on that machine itself or using remote PowerShell or anything else uh, to attack uh, um, other machines on the network as well. So that second tool we have is Vector. Um, it's from the guys over at uh, Security Risk Advisors. And they, they created a, a great tool um, that's used primarily for documenting um, everything you've done so you know exactly what you've already ran. You can put in there saying, hey, I want to run these in the future. Um, and then you can report exactly what happened. And they work well together. So they actually partnered, I believe, the two. So they actually have a specific logging style from Atomic Red Team that then works perfectly when you import it into Vector. It logs everything, attack times, techniques, every command run. Um, and then, so that's the red team side of that. And then you actually have the ability to go in and record your blue team side and see, okay, well, exactly what alerts fired, what got blocked, what just, you know, squeaked by without, um, without notice. So, uh, and then our automation is just you know, pulling them all together, making it all hands off and, and making it run flawlessly. Awesome. So you mentioned that red team side of things and the blue team side of things, what do you see as the relationship between security control validation and something like a purple team? Right. So security control validation is a necessary component of a robust purple teaming operation, right? So you can have human purple teams where we're doing human testing, and we've done that in the past. We have a uh, qualified incident response team that we work with who uh, mans up our blue team side of things, and, and there is a place in some of the tooling that we use to record that um, those processes as well. So it's all in a unified system that, that's vector. Security control validation as we're using it is a advanced form of purple teaming where we're automating a lot of the processes. So it's not related to purple teaming in and of itself, it, more that it is purple teaming in and of itself. So <laughs> Awesome. That was exactly what we were looking for. <laughs> So kind of moving down into this, uh, in your presentation, you outlined that uh, five-step process, and you had hit on some of those points. Do you just want to go back through them uh, as you guys did in the presentation real quick? 
There are five components to this, right? And I'll start back to front and then go front to back because I feel like a lot of people understand it better back to front and then front to back. So we always talk about how we communicate our results, right? And a lot of organizations have that figured out already. You've got Power BI, you've got some metrics, you've got somebody that maybe generates and reports your metrics, you've got a board meeting every quarter where you talk about metrics. Everybody loves metrics and bar graphs and all that stuff. I, I'm not a huge fan. So we, don't, we didn't really worry about that portion of what we did because our organization has that figured out, as most do. Going back behind that is usually where the engineers get interested because before reporting, you have to think, what are your successes and what are your failures? So did things, we're, we're validating security controls, so did things alert as intended? No, okay, somebody's got to fix that, right? And so assigning those roles is also something organizations usually have done already. That's going to be your incident response team, your EDR team, the guys that are really tuning and tooling. Um, you might even have a specific engineer for tuning and tooling we have in the past, and um, that's another component of this that's already built out for most people. You go back a step further, and you have to have a way to interpret your results and collect the results. Those are really two separate components of, of one thing, though. So Vector does all of the collection as well as makes it very human-readable for our interpretation, right? Obviously, a lot of old-school engineers can interpret data um, as it comes in many formats, but we're really concerned with repeatability of processes, so using something like Vector to make the data very human-readable and get not only engineer-interpretable results, but if I hand this stuff to my CEO even, who's not a technical guy at all, he can make heads or tails of it, right? And so that's really why we kind of targeted Vector for that portion of things. And taking it a step further, before you can interpret any of the results, what it, before you can collect the results, what you have to, you have to generate them. So we, we have to make a test, right? And that's what we use Atomic Red Team for. So back to front and then front to back, we collect the results, or we, we test the security control mm -hmm. using Atomic Red Team. We collect the results using Vector. We interpret the results using an engineer doing the human-readable uh, output from Vector. And we can, that interpret results step, that includes much more than just an engineer in the organization. Anybody can get in on that. So our CISO loves to drop in on, he's, he's an old engineer, so he loves to drop in on our engineering calls and stuff. And He'll sit there and talk about ideas and what we might do. And from there, your organization's already got it figured out. You know who's going to remediate your results usually, and you, you know how you're going to report these things. So a, a lot of our task was just those first three steps, and um, we, it, it didn't take much time for us to nail those down. Um, Jonathan did a pretty good, great job at it. So Awesome. So you kind of mentioned this with the failure remediation and stuff, but do you want to get into kind of gap analysis and how you've been able to work that into your process? Yeah, so what we realized is that we never had a formal gap analysis program to begin with, and the security control validation program allowed us to start making those gap analysis. So it was kind of the, we put the horse before the cart in a sense, a lot of people have formalized gap analysis, but they're seeking something to better get an idea of what needs to be analyzed. This gave us a head start on that. So we, we were able to already kind of start 
noticing things that cropped up uh, as part of the process, and it was very intuitive gap analysis at that point. So from here, do you want to get into uh, kind of a breakdown on the Atomic Red Team's attack patterns and how you've been able to use those to your benefit? Yeah, so the like I said, everything is mapped by back to the MITRE framework. I mean, it's pretty much an industry standard now, and so it's awesome that not just one tool, but all of our tools are able to map back to that. So that's a great framework to start with. the 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 exact um, attack vectors that you, you use with Atomic Red Team is it's all PowerShell based, um, and it uses something called Invoke Atomic. Um, there are also Python availabilities out there. I'm not super familiar with that side of things, but um, so basically it's all just command line driven in, in, in PowerShell. It gives you all the switches. You just go and identify, okay, I'm running, you know, T, whatever. You can specify even which subtest of that you want to run. Um, there's plenty of uh, other switches for different logging styles. There's um, a, an atomic runner or scheduler of sorts. Um, and what's actually neat about that is it'll actually go in and change the host name of the machine that is uh, the attacks are being run on or the victim machine, um, which helps correlate uh, or for alert correlation because that can be one of the more difficult aspects and most time consuming aspects for sure. So there's a lot of different switches there and including uh, custom input args as well. So, you know, let's say you're running a password attack of some sorts and so or, or let's do a new user ad you know you go in and so the defaults may be you know admin and password one two three but let's say uh, our network you know requires special characters the default didn't have one you can just you know quickly add in you know ta- you know dash custom input args for the password and change that to something that does fit your password complexity just a random example there um, and then everything is actually, so taking a step back from the command line, everything is built in YAML files and markdown files. And you actually have access to those once you download them from GitHub. And you can actually, it's extremely easy to go in and modify everything. So if you're doing a, like a DLP test, I think their standard from, from MITRE is, you know, just this is a DLP test, which most DLP tools probably aren't <laughs> going to pick up on um, unless you have really strict exfiltration rules. Um, but you can actually go into the YAML file and change that text from being this is a test to, hey, this is John Doe social of blah, blah, blah. Um, so it, it really gives you that customization um, and scalability and it, all the way to the fact of creating your own brand new custom atomics. So if there's a zero day that comes out and no one out there has created an atomic for it yet, you can just as easily go in and create something new to, to test that new zero day. So you've mentioned that repeatability, but also the scalability there. How often are you guys doing these tests to get those baselines and maintain them? Yeah, so we created a two-week cadence um, that just works best for you know our workloads. Um, so basically, you know, bi-weekly we'll be actually executing tests. We have a weekly meeting where we discuss, hey, we're going to run this test, um, make sure that you know uh, the our blue team or response team is on board with it. Okay, here's what we expect it to do. Um, and then the following day, we'll go execute it, take the, the rest of the week to, um, you know, go through our sim and see, okay, what actually got alerted to, what were the results of these tests. Following week, we report back and then send for remediation. And then just, just continue that cycle uh, every week. So, but as, go ahead, Tyler. Yeah, uh, I just wanted to add that a big component of this is taking the entire team into a space where you're actually purple teaming now. So, one of the challenges that we had to overcome is we have a very traditional security group and no purple team to start out with. So 
we got the incident responders really interested in this tool just by showing it to them. Yep. And then after we created this cadence, probably about a couple of months in, we were like, hey, let's just start a Slack channel and we're gonna call it we're gonna call it Purple Team Slack channel, you know, but it's not we're not a formal purple team. We never told anybody they were going to be on a formal purple team. We just kind of eased them into it. <laughs> so, and uh, getting that getting that interest first, you kind of get people to drive the drive the truck themselves, so to speak. And you get your you get your blue team aspect uh, really on board there. And the reason we call it a purple team though is because we don't we also don't need those incident responders, right? So in, in true purple teaming, you're you're one unit. There's not a blue team red team scenario. And we can function because we have access to the sim and things like that as our own purple team as well. But we like to work with the people in the organization that are responsible for the tools that we're testing. So, yeah, have you seen the buy-in from those that blue team side of the house match what you guys have done on the red team side? Yeah, absolutely. If not more, um, I'd say. Anytime somebody does something like what Jonathan did and, and brings a whole new project on and it's free and it doesn't cost any money and it you don't have to go through, no offense to any of our vendors, you don't have to go through a vendor sales rep to get yep. anything done with it. It is called on a budget after all. <laughs> we, get, we, get a, we, get a, we get a ton of engagement from everybody in the team, from our automation engineers to our application security guys. They're wondering, you know, like, how can I test my web applications with this next? How can we do... And a lot of that has to do with a good security culture at our organization as well. Uh, top to bottom, you have to have a, a, a good security culture to uh, really unlock the power of anything you're doing. But I mean, it takes a village, but especially with purple teaming, you're not going to see any of those benefits unless you've got everybody on board. Right, right. And like Jonathan said, having a good automation engineer who's a who's a super nerd to grab a hold of this stuff and just <laughs> obsess over it is helpful yep. too. <laughs> oh, yeah. The amount of time she's been like, I'm finally having fun on an automation project. You know, it's, it's so she's really developing it just for us engineers. So we're nerding out with all the Star Wars references, all the Lord of the Rings <laughs> yep. references oh, yeah. and all of that. So, you know, we're really able to have a lot of fun with it because I'm sure most of us in security already love our jobs, but we just love it that much more now. Yeah, I just, a, a caveat because I am the Star Wars nerd. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, our automation engineer has come up with custom icons for whether or not a test was successful or not in this little GUI that she's developed and. Um, the Death Star destroying Alderaan is a successful test. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Well, that begs the question: successful for who? <laughs> well, well, successfully. The red team. <laughs> I was about to say successfully failed. <laughs> oh, okay, yeah, yep, yep. So, it sounds like you guys have been working in this project for a good amount of time. What's the timeline been from when you started to what got you to this point? Yeah, so it's been. It's been about a year, give or take, give or take, probably a little over a year now. Um, so it, it started when I, so I first got hired as an intern, uh, May of 2022, and our security architect, my manager, was like, "Hey, so I got this really cool project. I want you to take a look at and see if it's something that you know you could implement, something we could utilize." Um, so that that really happened, you know. Obviously, coming straight out of college, not knowing anything about the enterprise, it took me a couple months to get my feet wet and understand the enterprise environment. 
Um, so I'd probably say about midsummer, uh, and then it's been. I mean, it's it's still actively being developed. We're not gonna sit here and say, "Hey, we have it exactly how we want it." <laughs> we just have a lot of really cool ideas that we may or may not be able to get there. Um, so at this point, I mean, I'd say we're we're really well, really far along, um, and we're finally able to get to a, a position um, avail also with just schedule availability and, and cycles to get that automation part really, really rocking and rolling. And so I think we're at a point now where uh, it's going to, all the legwork is done. And so now it's just going to skyrocket from there. Right. And I, I want to point out too, this isn't a um, continuous process of development that's occurred either because we, we also have responsibilities that are legacy from the organization, right? So we couldn't just go off and do Atomic Red Team with no other responsibilities. So sometimes it's been, hey, we're going to run what we got, and it's not great right now, but we have other responsibilities to take care of, but we always keep it on our mind. I think keeping your your organizational sprints in line is going to be the key to success here. Never table something and just don't come back to it because we, we've all done that before, right? Like everybody said, we're going to get this done this quarter, and then life happens, it doesn't get done that quarter, but then it doesn't get put on the sprint cycle for the next quarter or the next quarter, and then you're looking at fiscal year next year, and, oh, there's that thing we were doing. <laughs> <laughs> Three years ago that we put in the mothballs, yeah. So to add on to that, he, uh, I lost what I was saying, but we, one of our uh, questions that we realized I kept asked over and over in our presentation was, so how big is your team? And it's really, it's just the two of us. Two of us and an automation engineer with the direction of our managers. But it's a, it's a really small team, again, who have other responsibilities. So it doesn't, you know, you don't have to have a massive team of 10 people just dedicated on this project. And and, and like Tyler said, I mean, it's a, a good chunk of it has really just been done by one person. I mean, obviously with the help of everyone else, but it could be done by a team of one if you, if you needed to. That's amazing. So with that in mind... Is there any advice you would give to an RHISAC member or a listener that was looking to go through this process with either a team your size or with any more resources? Get an automation engineer. <laughs> <laughs> right, but re really, really what, take it slow and do it right, okay? Um, you're not generating value if you're just, hammering things out as fast as you can, right? You want to make sure that this is the right fit for your organization. I believe it can fit any organization, but you need to get that buy-in from your senior leadership and make sure they're on board, put it on the sprint cycle, make it official, get other people involved. If you have someone in your organization who's red teamed in the past, blue teamed, purple teamed, etc., get them involved even just as a consultant I think this project could be one of those things where junior engineers really make their name off of it because it's not incredibly difficult to do, um, but it takes cycles. And what do a lot of junior engineers have a lot of? Uh, they've got some time, right? So let's, but they have to be allowed to do it is yep. the thing. So that, that senior leadership buy-in, it's really critical to not... Uh, no one should ever hear the phrase, why are you wasting your time on this, right? And we've all heard that phrase before. It's not, but it's not, it's not contingent to healthy business practice and it's not contingent to innovation. So the, if you want to innovate, you want to take things to the next level, let the junior engineers junior engineer, let them be creative, right? Like 
the entire idea behind why we're called engineers in the first place is because we're creative scientists. That's the way I look at it. That's why IT guys along with mechanical engineers can be called engineers because yes, we have a, a, a technical skill set, but our creativity has to shine through that at times to really get good work done. I would say, so as the junior engineer with the extra cycles, <laughs> I, I would say, you know, to really anyone, but, you know, obviously, especially the, the juniors who, you know, this may get pawned off to, is take advantage, take advantage of your resources. Um, don't be afraid to ask questions. And that goes for everything, really. But the documentation specifically with Atomic Red Team, with Vector, are incredible. So like I said with Atomic Red Team, is everything is already documented on GitHub, and they truly do take advantage of their wiki page. So everything is well documented there, and they even have a ticketing system, so if you have questions, you can submit them there, uh, submit feature requests. So there's a lot of great documentation there, as long as a Slack community um, as well. So you can hop on the Slack community for Atomic Red Team, ask any questions, hear ideas from others utilizing it as well. Um, and the same thing goes for Vector. I think they have, it's actually a Discord server that you can go in and ask questions, get advice. You know, they push all their, you know, new updates, give you advice of things to take advantage of. Um, and again, they also have a very robust documentation on their website as well. Fantastic. Yeah, this is great. I mean, I, congratulations, Jonathan, on, on spearheading this this project. <laughs> and congratulations, Tyler, on finding Jonathan when he was an intern and, and holding <laughs> Thank on you. to him. That's good stuff. And I want to thank uh, both of you, Jonathan Buckner and Tyler Compton, both uh, security engineers and our own security engineer, Aaron Furr. You guys are from Aaron's. Thank you very much for, for sharing this, not only on our, on our summit, but uh, here on the podcast. I think it's going to be very valuable for uh, our, your fellow member. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us, guys. We're now joined by Alex Hyde, VP of Threat Research and Fellow at Security Scorecard. Welcome to the RHI SAC podcast. Thanks for having me, Luke. Looking forward to getting to speaking today. Yeah, thank you. And uh, we, thanks to Security Scorecard for being such a great associate member of ours, very supportive of our members uh, and of the RHI SAC. Tell me, what does it mean that you're a fellow also, in addition to being a VP of Threat Intel? Yeah, sure. So with uh, with my fellowship role, it's essentially, uh, it was a, a promotion after having been in, a, uh, in the executive team for which about nine, ten years now, and uh, so, so it's moved into a, a, a fellowship role, which is a, a essentially um, a sort of a, a kind of an honorary title where I, I get to work with basically all, all the teams and uh, have a lot of the, the institutional knowledge from basically since the company was still a PowerPoint, and um, I kind of so I bring that to the table and basically I'm able to liaison with all the all the different teams to to make the, the way I phrase it to get the ball across the line. Excellent. So you have a pretty good insight into what's going on across different sectors and across all your clients. You know, usually when we talk to members and mention Security Scorecard, and we do, um, they have a pretty good sense of, of what you guys are and what you guys do. But for those of us who might be listening that don't know what Security Scorecard does, maybe you can give us a quick uh, description. Sure. So Security Scorecard is a, uh, a platform that acts as a third-party risk management uh, rating system. And in addition to that, uh, it's, uh, we also have uh, an array of threat intelligence and cyber risk uh, management services. But primarily, we are a, a vendor risk management platform for the purposes of third-party vendor risk management. Excellent. Yeah, third-party risk is something we talk about a lot on the podcast. So I was thinking we would pick your brain today on credit card fraud. So from your viewpoint, from Security Scorecard's view, uh, what is the current landscape on credit card fraud and, and how is it evolving? 
Sure. So it's quite interesting because a few years ago when the EMV chip was introduced into the into credit cards, I personally I kind of expected a decrease in in credit card fraud instance, especially when it comes to physical uh, physical card fraud such as cloning. Uh, but one of the things that we've observed is that not only did that not make much of a difference, but credit card fraud is now more prolific than it was ever be- ever before. Just the number of uh, the number of underground resources, selling websites, the methodologies of malicious actors that are collecting credit card numbers uh, from both uh, skimming and uh, web application attacks has also evolved and and scaled and. Uh, and we can even go into this bit, uh, uh, we can talk about this later, but it's actually entered the mainstream now where there's a, a very popular genre of hip hop called scam rap that will actually break down step by step how to engage in these types of, uh, uh, types of credit card fraud activity. And it's not just some corner underground niche, it's actually mainstream now. I mean, that's amazing that you can get instructions on how to commit credit card fraud in musical format. But um, so, what are the most common methods? I think we've heard of skimming, uh, but what other what other methods are threat actors using that, that target specifically retail and hospitality? If you wouldn't mind delving into our sector, uh, sure. So the, the there's a few methods of, of going about it. So primarily with retail and hospitality, a lot of the uh, so we'll break it down into two buckets: uh, in store fraud and card not present fraud, or physical uh, physical uh, being present using a cloned card or doing something online uh, with, with just the card number. So when it, uh, and we'll start off with the, the online version of it. So um, when it comes to the way, uh, I'd say 10 years ago, maybe a little over 10 years ago, uh, the way malicious actors would be able to obtain credit card numbers is typically they do a web application attack that would, usually an SQL injection that would dump the database from a website. And if they're not storing it right, they would have the, you know, unencrypted credit cards, the three-digit codes and all that. And no one's supposed to do that, even though it was a PCI, uh, not PCI compliant, there's still, there still enough uh, shops doing that to make it uh, to, to make it an issue. But you know, fast forward to modern day, all that's pretty much, uh, pretty much handled. Everyone's using tokenized uh, authentication features like Stripe. So what, uh, what the hackers have done, and it's real interesting, is they're no longer really interested in attacking the back end. They're attacking the front ends. So by getting, uh, by if, once they're able to hack the web application, they're not necessarily interested in the database, but they are interested in what the user is typing. So there's a, a piece of malware called MageCart that is uh, incredibly popular right now and circulating. And uh, what they'll do is they'll Throw, uh, they'll infect, uh, and it's just not—it's not just MageCart. There's various JavaScript key loggers that attackers are now using on um, the checkout forms of websites in order to key log everything that a user's typing in, and then send and then send it off to a command and control center. So that's that's one of the primary methods that credit cards are being collected uh, uh, online through JavaScript uh, key logging, and also also phishing attacks, just the standard setting up a fake website and entering uh, entering the info. So almost like you could call it a virtual skimmer. Yeah, yeah, yeah correct, correct. And um, and then you, you'll still have the you'll still have the occasional breach of of processing services or uh, giant uh, big retail stores. Uh, like uh, I would say the, the there's a lot of uh, cards that are coming that that are available from those types of things. But I would say the those are kind of seasonal. So when there whenever there's a big breach, uh, then those cards will flood the market. And uh, until they're uh, until they're gone. But for the most part, the 
year-round type credit cards dumps that are available is mostly stuff from uh, skimmers. So, you know, either people get a, a crooked waiter, or just someone who has access to cards, doing doing scams and collecting it, and then reselling those and reselling those, and those will end up on uh, these credit card uh, shops. And it's not even the dark net; it's the clear net, where you can just Google CVV shop, and you'll find tens of thousands. Every time one gets taken down, another one pops up, and then carding forms will filter you to filter you through to them and what's even with the increase of all the different types of um, uh, fraud protection mechanisms the convenience mechanisms from all these different peer-to-peer payment systems has basically rendered all those security things useless because a a credit card plus combined with all the um, uh, identity theft uh, personal PII info that's been circulating from various breaches of, you know, say, um, uh, credit rating agencies. Pretty much everyone's social security number and birthday are out there by now. So, so if you've got, uh, if you're able to make a purchase uh, from, say, an underground website, uh, you get a dump and it's got uh, a, a credit card and it's got someone's you know, first name, last name, and their, uh, their general location, for a few dollars more, another underground resource will give you their social security number and birthday. And now you can start using that uh, that you can use that information on things like Cash App, Venmo, PayPal, and that's the that's a lot where a lot of the game is these days. Setting up these fake accounts on these on these peer to peer payment services, linking up and they call them linkables. They'll link up uh, the stolen cards with stolen identity info, and then just start making making transfers. And in addition to that, making yeah, in addition to that, making big purchases from um, from stores. So specifically as it affects retails. One of the common linking scams is to use uh, things like Google Pay or Apple Pay or any type of payment system that can be used at a register, and they'll use stolen credit cards to link into their uh, to link up to that account, and then they'll pay with their phone, and that will oftentimes go it'll fly right through, uh, but it'll be authorized and looks much less sketchy than someone trying to swipe with like a white credit card and. Uh, that type of stuff. It looks much more natural, and it's it's been a huge problem um, that's uh, across the uh, across the entire industry right now. Of um, there's a lot to unpack there. I mean, I think um, you're you're kind of illustrating the the convergence between um, on the online world and the physical world because uh, no matter where the cards were the card details were stolen from, they can be used both online and then in person uh, with the with these new tap to pay systems. So. I mean, it's a, it's a very it's a very complicated and complex problem to try to solve. And geographically, it doesn't matter geographically anymore because it, with the uh, personal information that's used in combination with the cards, a simple phone call to the bank with a voice changer, uh, or even if, or some of you guys don't even care, they'll just call the bank with their regular voices. Uh, a simple call to the bank will be able to you know, authorize certain things and get them yeah, get them to to link up. So it's uh, it's definitely uh, all the mechanisms that were implemented to mitigate fraud. It seems like there are complementary methods to make it more convenient for the user, and those are what the actors are exploding. So, exploding. so they could call the bank and say, "Oh, I'm going to be traveling." So if you see, uh, so if uh, this card from America starts showing up used in Europe or vice versa, then it's covered. Then- Yes. <laughs> right. So it's funny, you, you brought up the EMV chips, and I didn't know they were called EMV chips. They were just chips. And you brought up geography, which is, I remember when I was traveling to Europe uh, on vacation, like maybe 10 years ago, 
they had introduced chips before we had, and we didn't have chips in our American cards. We were still swiping. They had a little embarrassing. They had to pull out. Everybody knew I was Americans. So they pulled out a different machine and made me do my signature and stuff. But like you have the chips and contactless payments, which have taken off uh, everywhere, both with the card present or in with one of the pay apps you mentioned. But all these things are are being adopted now globally and uh, ostensibly to protect against fraud, but not having the effects that that we had hoped. Yeah, so, so specifically about how the, those specific technologies are not having the effect that we had hoped. So with EMV cards, um, so again, when it's hooked up to a, a pay app, it doesn't matter. The, car, the, the chip itself is off the, off the table. There, there's this one song called How to Write a Dump by a rapper named Punch Made Dev. And, and specifically in the last verse of this song, he'll say, uh, what, you know, you'll, don't worry about cloning the EMV card. If you've got the track data, that's all you need. Because then it's just a matter of social engineering. So you go to the. He says. You, I mean, he makes it rhyme, and he says it much more clever than I do. But he <laughs> says you go to the. But uh, when you, you first do a, you stick you, you stick the card without a chip into the little card reader. It'll have problems reading. You just look at the cashier like, oh, what's going on? And you do that a few times, and the cashier will just be like, ah, just swipe it. And then you swipe it. It goes through, and you're gone. And he just says, if if you know if. If it doesn't happen after twice, then you just drop and get out of the store as quick as possible. But so you don't, you don't have a you don't have a future in uh, wrapping. But we'd rather have you in threat intelligence anyway. You know, it's funny. I was a I um, moderated a panel at a grocery store conference earlier this year, uh, and we had video from one of our panelists of that kind of social engineering happening. There was a woman that had a list of credit cards on her phone that she had gotten off dark or clear web. Uh, and was social engineering the woman, uh, the cashier, into uh, uh, typing them in or letting just her just while she, did, she didn't have a card, just like typing it in. That's that's incredible. It's crazy. So uh, go, going back globally, are there regions where um, credit card fraud is more prevalent, or is it really just a global issue now? One thousand percent a global issue, absolutely. But it's uh, I would say the uh, there the, the United States is probably the one that's most impacted by it, simply because we have the most credit cards that are available, and you know, this is the it's a big target. But the uh, I would say a lot of the groups behind it, I mean, pretty much you've, you've got very organized groups, and you've just kind of got hobbyists and small crews. But the the real big organized groups, the, they're usually associated, associated with uh, Vietnamese organized crime, Russian organized crime. Usually it's organized crime groups that are pretty organized. Um, and regionally we've been seeing a lot of the activity, I mean, going back 10, 15 years and it's still quite prevalent, uh, coming out of Vietnamese, Vietnamese hacking crews. And uh, the, made, the group that is in charge of, or I wouldn't say charged, the group that pretty much started and launched and runs the mage card operations is a, is a Russian group. And and these all, all these groups will, will work together and kind of like the ecosystem is cards get collected and then they're bundled and then sold and then resold down to these uh, uh, credit card shops and then people will buy them uh, buy them from there. and Right, to be used. So, I mean, so it is global, but how, how big of a problem do you estimate it is in terms of financial losses or reputational damage? So the biggest losses, so reputational damage, usually the reputational damage is, um, I mean, essentially because from a retail perspective, if a brand gets labeled as cardable, it's technically good for the brand because it means more people will be shopping there. But people, I mean, like, it's like, oh yeah, this is a, uh, they will accept my stolen credit cards, but it's bad. It's bad because, you know, like now there's going to be a convergence of, 
of folks um, uh, using doing fraud on that on that uh, entity. So that's that's another thing that the, the carding scene looks for. They they try to determine which retail stores are cardable and not both online and offline. And they'll and what they mean by cardable is how difficult or simple is it to actually get a transaction to to go through? Can, uh, you know how much finagling do they need to, for it to go through? So being being labeled as cardable. Probably not something, not something that companies want to aspire to, but uh, everyone is cardable. And from the standpoint of the global, global, it all depends on how um, dedicated the the attacker is. But from a, from a global's perspective, it seems that the United States has the most type of act, most activity and the most cards on the market. And I'm making that assessment because of the, the prices. So there are. Uh, often the prices and quantities. So there are more United States cards available than any other country, and because of that, they are the cheapest to use. And they also oftentimes will have some of the more advanced security features, so they're actually uh, more difficult to use, hence the lower price, because it takes more effort to, to get something out of them. And with European cards, there's less of them on the market, and they're, uh, because there's less on the market, they'll oftentimes be more expensive, and they might not have as much advanced security features. So, if a so say with the United States card, you might not be able to use it out of the country. A European card will not have issues being used in different countries throughout Europe because it's much smaller, and that's just how it's set up over there. So, uh, European cards will oftentimes be three to four times more expensive than the United States card uh, because there's less of them and it take and less effort to use, whereas the United States one, there's more of them and it takes a little more effort to use. And one of the things that uh, that attackers will do is they'll analyze the, the bin numbers of the credit card. So the first, uh, the bank identification numbers, the first five or six digits will tell you where the bank is from. So an attacker will be able to determine which bins work for them and so so they can find out you know it's like okay this bin works good on this store so then they'll go into a carding shop and buy a bunch of those specific bins in order to 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 use them that makes sense because obviously the, the store or the 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 store itself will have its own security measures but then the issuer will have it's security measurements, so you got to find the right combination. Of exactly, and the, the, it ends up being the store, the merchant, the retail outlet ends up getting burned by this because not only do they get hit with, not only do they lose the service or the merchandise that's being taken out the door, they're getting hit with a chargeback fee from the cardholder, and so now it's like lost inventory plus chargeback fee. Uh, and and that that accumulates, and it's um the, the banks don't really care. They'll kill a card, they'll issue a new one. Um, it's it's already written in the fraud is written into their business model and the risk management model. They'll, that cards have expiration dates, for example. They'll just keep they'll send you a new one. But if when a when an outlet gets hit, that they're the the onus is always pushed to the merchant. And in fact, that's specifically been the case with. Uh, that was one of the big reasons that these EMV chips were, were were rolled out because there was that back and forth. It's like, oh well, it's the bank should be doing something. No, the merchant should be doing something. Well, now with the EMV chips, like, hey, now it's now it's on the merchant. So that kind of gave the banks more of a, hey, if this happens, it's your problem. So, so obviously a huge, huge financial issue for uh, for retailers, consumer facing businesses, but also it affects the customer experience as well. So, so. Um, I mean, there's badness all around. So let, let's let's try to be a little bit more positive here. What are what are um, merchants and retailers doing to combat this, whether it's cybersecurity related or otherwise? Uh, sure. So 
one of the things that can be done to uh, to essentially combat it is first and foremost probably uh, employee training on what to do to to spot type of uh, you know, suspicious types of behaviors you know, at the at the checkout you're working with the at the local loss prevention team within the store or the loss prevention team to uh, i mean there's surveillance cameras that uh, i'm sure there's a bunch of surveillance camera footage of these particular incidents taking place so uh, having uh, you know analyzing those looking for types of behaviors and patterns to to look for sometimes it's just very difficult to tell but uh, there's always going to be when enough of it happens, there's always going to be patterns that emerge. So uh, observing patterns of behavior uh, of incidents that have taken place. Uh, and again, we, for myself, without having analyzed the videos, there's no direct suggestions I could make on this. But this is just like if I worked in loss prevention in a retail, this is probably what I would start, this is probably what I would go, go for. And uh, awareness, so uh, yeah, and that's uh, you know, that would be first and foremost because that's no matter what type of technical uh, protections you put into place, uh, if the, the cashier could be social engineered, or the the person processing the card could be social engineered. Then um, that's the that that's the weak link. And then secondary to that, I would say uh, just having um being. I mean, if you're especially if it's a, a retail place that has their own type of gift cards that are that are available, uh, a lot of times gift cards, credit cards will be used. Uh, gift cards will be used to launder stolen credit cards, so they'll make a bunch of purchases with those. So that, that that's another thing to be looking for if you're a, a retail outlet, maybe uh, putting different types of controls or restrictions or monitoring on on gift card programs to prevent it from being exploited in that manner. Um, also, online pickup, where companies where people can purchase stuff on the internet and then go pick it up in store. That's also a very common thing that uh, credit card processors will use. Uh, they'll do a card not present purchase on the internet, and then they'll either send themselves or their friends to go uh, pick it up. So, basic basic due diligence, like checking uh, checking IDs, like making it making it more difficult for them to to do. So, I know there's a convenience factor, and this probably will impact the customer experience a bit, but. Customers know that this is going on, and they're willing to—they're willing to deal. I mean, me personally, I'm willing to deal with a little of the inconvenience. If I go to a store and they ask me to show my ID before I make a pickup, that's not a big deal, especially if I know that someone else could come in and take my purchase for me. So it's um, uh, unfortunately that kind of seems to be hazardous. Adding little bits of things that might kind of inconvenience the speed of the the process, but will go a long way to preventing the fraud because if you're not doing that, the baggers are definitely trying to steal stuff. And it doesn't need to be for every transaction, but just the ones that kind of raise the red flag. Yeah, ones that raise the red like flag. 50 gift cards at once or, or you're, you know, you're reading a list of credit card numbers off your phone, that kind of thing. Uh, or like the, you get three failed uh, transactions and then like, hold on, let me try another one. Let me try another one. They got a different card here. Uh, and uh, yeah, so, so there's uh, th- those types of things and it, it that will go uh that, that will definitely go a long way because that will uh, eventually the carters will know like okay find a different spot the, they're they're a little too they're, they're a little too diligent so then they'll just look for a spot with lower uh, uh lower um uh, enforce yeah lower enforcement and if and if you're a big store and you got multiple chains then that's where the employee awareness comes in, comes in yeah. you talked a little bit about the uh, friction between merchants and issuers uh, because of their willingness to accept this kind of risk as part of their business model. Are there any collaborations either amongst uh, in the retail space or, or uh, with them and, and other groups that, that help mitigate this or help solve these problems? I imagine there are. And one I can 
speak to that I know exists is a few years ago, um, MasterCard did a uh, MasterCard was partnering with uh, people in the retail world. I, I believe it was just uh, companies, uh, any company that would take credit cards in general. And they also had a bunch of um, uh, AI projects and startups that they were working with to kind of merge the use, basically use AI to identify the anomalous patterns of credit card fraud and try to try to minimize that. So that was that was a few years ago. I'm sure it's um, advanced uh, considerably beyond then, and that's just the the one I've heard about. So I'm sure there are definitely. Um, I mean, on the counter side, if there are not, there definitely needs to <laughs> needs to be because this is. Um, you know, I I definitely don't want to underplay the fact that this is becoming a mainstream phenomenon now. It's not just like hackers like it was 10 years ago or little organized groups of uh, people from other countries coming in or teenagers. This is going to, I mean, it's in mainstream hip hop now. So just like, just like kids think it's cool to, you know, do the rapper thing, smoke marijuana or whatever. Like that's just what rappers say is cool. So kids do it. And this is, um, you know, that now, so just like just how we, how we saw, you know, gangster rap culture influence the youth over the last twenty years. If this takes off, those kids kids are going to be good at making money without going to work. Yeah, they call it scam rap. <laughs> oh, scam rap, and we'll see probably TikTok challenges as well. Yeah, that's it, already it, all over there. It's already it's already that's TikTok is a massive spot for showing this off and recruiting. Um, some of the keywords that they'll use is they'll they call them glitches. So. A cash app glitch, a PayPal glitch, a Best Buy glitch. It makes it sound uh, blameless if they do it. Yeah, it's just a glitch. It's a bug, like a video game. We can't get through a uh, podcast segment without mentioning AI. So thanks for doing that. We, if we're playing, if you're playing at home, you can take a drink. If you're playing at home alone, uh, but you know, I, I also I often ask our guests to get out their crystal ball and, and talk about make predictions for the future. We talked about chips and contactless payments. What's next? I'm thinking like biometric. The last time I flew, I didn't have to take out my ID or my boarding pass. My face just got me through security. Better or for worse. Uh, so what, what's what's next? Do you think with with attempts to make cards more secure? Uh, so I, you know, I I don't know if biometrics are going to they're the next thing because it'll probably be. I mean, within the United States anyway, there'd probably be a lot of pushback from the, the customers just in, in uh, I mean, people don't really mind going biometrics when it's things like traveling or stuff when it comes to physical safety. But when it comes to just financial safety, then their privacy kind of comes into place. Like, well, I don't necessarily want to tie all my biometrics to my bank. I mean, it, it depends. Again, it's all, I guess it depends on how it's marketed and how it's sold to the, uh, sold to everyone. But um, so, and again, with biometrics though, it, uh, at the end of the day, a biometric is just a, a, a hash on a back-end system. So uh, in the event that there's some way that that's compromised, it, just replaying the hash could kind of get past the biometric. So like, I've, it's not really a, a – I, I don't see it as a foolproof thing, but it would definitely be a, a thing to make it uh, – it's, it's a stepping stone to make it less easy for the attackers. But with every – It's just another tool that they'll try to find a way to get around. So, uh, just so then, just broadly, like looking at the next five, ten years, what kind of trends uh, can you predict for us? So, I definitely predict a, a spike, like a, a hockey stick spike in mobile payment um, uh, in store fraud. Google Pay, Apple Pay, uh, any any of those services that a company may accept, or even a, a hotel, or any, any, if if your, company, if your business accepts mobile payments from one of those service providers. 
chances are a percentage of those will end up being um, being fraud, especially in the bigger, and it's going to be bigger cities um, impacted uh, than than not. And, and not just bigger city, but the small the town surrounding that city, because a lot of times people will go, you know, take a drive to do it. So um, it, it's gonna. And I mean, honestly, even I don't even want to just say big cities because people will travel and they'll do cross country sprees, hitting. And small towns are known to right. Be it'll s- it'll start where, where the people are, but then move out where the yeah. targets are. Just as an aside, are, are those mobile payment apps? Are these are those viewed as card present or card not present uh, transactions? Yeah, it's a good question. I guess I don't know if it would be considered card present, but the person is there physically. So, like the person's there physically, and they're using a combination of stolen PII with uh, stolen credit cards because that's how they're able to get the right. So it's account. kind of a murky gray area. Yeah, you know, obviously, just, I've I've used it without the card being present. If I forgot it, you know, then but I have it. Yeah, just like I have my two usable wallets because it's just like ah, oh, I left my wallet in the car. Right? In the old days, I'd have to walk back out to the car and be all embarrassing. And now it's just like, okay, good, like, beep, done. Thank you, Alex Hyde, VP of Threat Research and Fellow at Security Scorecard, for joining us on the RHI SAC podcast. Thank you to all of my guests, in person from the summit and virtual. Brett Cumming, RHI SAC 2023 CISO of the Year, Tyler Compton and Jonathan Buckner of Aarons, Alex Hyde from Security Scorecard, and our own Ian Furr. By the way, for those members listening, Ian's the man to talk to when you need to set up a way to automatically ingest and share cyber threat intelligence with our MISP instance. Shoot us an email at support at rhisec.org to set up a meeting. And if your company is not yet a member of the RHISEC, what are you waiting for? Go to rhisec.org slash join to learn more and to start the process. If you have something cybersecurity related that you just have to get off your chest, shoot us an email at podcast at rhisac.org, or if you're a member, hit me up on Slack or Member Exchange. Finally, thank you to the production team who do their best to make us sound good. For the RHISAC, that's Annie Chambliss and Marisa Trashinecki. And from N2K Networks, formerly known as the Cyberwire, Jennifer Ivan, Trey Hester, and Elliot Peltzman. And thanks to you, our loyal listeners, as always, for listening, and stay safe out there. Stay safe out there.